Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. It is my pleasure today to introduce Annie Barrows. Uh, I first encountered the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society at a beachfront house near Bombay, sitting on a planter's chair on the open patio in the sweltering pre-monsoon heat, drowsy from a lunch of spicy fish and mango. I opened the first page and I was instantly transported into a very different world. I was reading a letter written in 1946 by a woman named Juliet Ashton, who was a newspaper columnist touring with a book, a collection of her columns written during the war. Juliet is selling a lot of books, but she is writing to tell her publisher that she can't be a light-hearted journalist anymore. She's done that during the war, and she's glad she did, but now she's too tired, too damaged by what she's experienced. So right from the beginning of Guernsey, we are in the world of writing and publishing. We are thinking already about what a writer's work can mean to herself and to other people, why we write and why we read. And so, of course, it is through another letter about a book that Juliet finds a hidden narrative that fires up her curiosity again. She receives an inquiry from a stranger who has found her address on the flyleaf of a book he's loved on the tiny island of Guernsey where he lives. There are no bookstores. Might she suggest a shop in London that could ship him books by his beloved writer, who turns out to be Charles Lamb? And so from this connection between two readers begins the story of the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society, which you'll have to read the book in order to understand the title. Um, Or maybe, I don't know. (laughs) It is, as I said, a story about books and reading, about how books can open up whole worlds, even to those who are isolated by geography and history. It is a story about writers and literary traditions. The members of the society offer opinions and insights on Jane Austen, Wilfred Owen, and many others. But this is also a story about real life at its very harshest. Guernsey is one of the Channel Islands, which were invaded by the Germans in World War II, and so became one of the only pieces of British territory to suffer under Nazi occupation. And if nothing else, I'm grateful to Annie for teaching me this, which I had absolutely no idea about. Uh, What followed is harrowingly brought to life in Guernsey, in the neighboring island of Alderney. The Nazis built a concentration camp and brought in foreign slave labor. More than 2,000 islanders were deported to prison camps in Germany, and those who remained were subject to all the horrors of a fascist occupation, including fear, violence, and starvation. It turns out that the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society is a book club forming to give some of the islanders an excuse to meet after curfew. Reading, in this case, becomes a means of survival and resistance. I hope I've given you some idea of the range of this novel, of its reach. I think what caught me on that afternoon in India and kept me reading feverishly was this book's rare combination of suffering and humor, its concern with ideas, and also the desperately important details of daily life, its narrative momentum and the scale of its writing, which coexisted with the fullness of emotion and sentiment. I don't want to take up too much time, so I won't tell you why there are two names credited on the cover of this book, which is a striking story itself, and hopefully Annie will give us a little clue into that. Um, I'll just mention that the novel has been translated into 26 languages and has become an international bestseller. It's been declared one of the best books of 2008 by Time Magazine, The Washington Post, and many others. Annie is also the author of two award-winning series for children, Ivy and Bean and The Magic Half. She lives in Northern California. Please join me in welcoming Annie Barrows. Thank you so much. Oh, nice microphone. Um, I was, I, I want to say before I begin that 
I've gotten several emails when I, in the last couple of weeks from um, people who were befuddled by the um, title Story Hour and thought this was one of my children's book readings. <laughs> Is there anybody here who's thinking they're going to get Ivy and Bean? <laughs> Good. There's one little girl who was going to miss soccer practice, but I told her she could do it. We, we'll catch up later. So it's all adults. That's good. Adults are less wiggly. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the fact that this book was written by me and my aunt. Um, and to do this um, requires that I go back in time and tell the story of how this book began. I have always, all my life, been confused by uh, co-authored books. The way, the only way I could ever envision a book being written by two people is to have, I thought that maybe one person would sit down at the keyboard and type, and the other person would pace behind them and dictate, and then every 15 minutes they'd switch which seemed like a really miserable way to write a book to me, but it was the only way I could conceive of it. And that is in completely not the way this book was created, so I feel that it um, deserves a little explanation before I begin reading. Uh, my Aunt Marianne was um, a, a great storyteller. She was also a writer. All my life, Marianne was writing books, but she was not finishing them. This is the only book she ever finished. Um, and this story begins in 1980 when Marianne was in the throes of another book. She was writing a biography of Lady Kathleen Scott, who was the wife of the polar explorer Robert Falcon Scott. Marianne loved Robert Falcon Scott. She really didn't care too much for Lady Kathleen Scott, but there were many biographies of Captain Scott and no biographies of Lady Scott, so Marianne decided to become the official biographer of Lady Scott. And after a lot of toing and froing with the family, she got access to Lady Scott's papers in Cambridge, England. And this, I remember, is a great period of purchasing matching suitcases and outfits, but it was also... Marianne had done her research, and it was a very exciting period for her as a writer, and she got all ready, and she flew off to Cambridge, and she got herself to the library, and the little old man with the squeaking trolley laden with dusty boxes came towards her, and she opened up the first box, and it was a little teeny-weeny piece of paper with ancient pencil writing on it. But Marianne was a true scholar, and she deciphered the pencil writing, took her hours and discovered that it was a laundry list. <laughs> and then she took a deep breath and reached into the box and pulled out the next piece of paper. And after a few hours, she discovered that that was a grocery list. And after a couple of days, she realized that Lady Scott had never written a word worth preserving and realized, too, that she despised Lady Scott, had always despised Lady Scott, <laughs> didn't want to write a biography of her, didn't want to ever think about her again. So, for reasons that my family argues about endlessly, she decided to leave and fly to Guernsey. And this is a very peculiar thing for somebody to do. There must have been a reason, because Guernsey is very difficult to get to. She must have had a purpose. We don't know what it was. She flew to Guernsey 
And um, what happened then is a, one of the great Marianne stories. Um, there are many great Marianne stories, but this is a very good one. And she always said that the moment she arrived, the fog boiled out of the sea and enveloped the island with gloom. She heard the taxis rattle away. The airport shut down. The ferry service shut down. And there was Marianne, immured. She spent the next 36 hours in the Guernsey airport under the hand dryer in the men's restroom, trying to keep warm. (laughs) The hand dryer in the women's restroom was broken. But while she was trying to keep warm, there is just no... You would never spend 36 hours without reading a book if you're Marianne. So she would make periodic trips out of the bathroom to the bookstore in the airport. And that's where she discovered that the island of Guernsey had been occupied by the Nazis during the Second World War. Because the Guernsey Airport bookstore in 1980 was the primary outlet for local publishing, and local publishing is pretty much about the occupation. So there Marianne sat until the fog lifted, reading book after book after book about the occupation of the Channel Islands. And when the fog finally did lift, Marianne left the island never to return. She never saw a single thing on that island. Um, But she was an expert, and she was passionately fascinated by this episode of history that she had never known about. But that was in 1980. And as I say, Marianne was a great beginner but never a finisher of her ideas. And so she did not write the book. She continued to do research. She, of course, researched endlessly about the occupation. Her research spread onto resistance fighters in general and the Second World War and the history of Guernsey and everything else you can think of. But she did not begin to write the book until the year 2000 um, when my mother, who for about 65 years had been saying, now Marianne you better just sit down and write a book. Finally figured out that that wasn't working and developed a a fake writer's group um, with two of Marianne's best friends in order to goad Marianne into writing. They figured that mere social obligation would do the trick because Marianne was a very well-brought-up person. And so everybody had to turn something in at each meeting. And first my mother did her duty and wrote some piece of trash, as she calls it. My mother hates writing. Um, And then Marianne's dear friend Julia did her duty. And then uh, Sarah, another dear friend of Marianne's, wrote her work. And then it was Marianne's turn. And at that point, she wrote the beginning of the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Now, bless the writing group's heart, they kept they kept after her, and eventually she had finished a book, and this was a cause for great rejoicing in our family. Just the mere fact of Marianne, our beloved storyteller, finishing a book, that was something. But the writing group also went on and said, that's fine, now you've got to publish it. And Marianne found herself an agent, which is no day at the beach, and then the agent said, all right, let's work on this, and they worked on it for another year, and then the agent said, I think we've got ourselves a manuscript that works here, we'll send it out. And the agent sent it out to 12 publishers, and all 12 of them wanted the book. Well, this was more than any of us had ever dreamed of 
and much, much more than Marianne had ever dreamed of. What she said was, all I ever wanted was to write a book that someone would like enough to publish. And the day that the publisher's auction was concluded and the book was bought, she called me up and said, this morning, I was vacuuming the rug, and this afternoon, I'm an author. <laughs> it, was a, it was wonderful. It was wonderful, and it was very sadly almost immediately followed by uh, Marianne getting sick. So the triumph was short-lived. Marianne got sick while the book was with the new publisher being edited. And when the edits came back, there was substantial rewriting to be done. And Marianne didn't feel that she could take it on. She said, I can't begin this again. And at that point, she called me and said, you're the other writer in the family. Can you do this? And I said, why, yes, I can. <laughs> Never fear, I will do this. And inside I was thinking, this is completely impossible. It's her story. It's, these are her people. This is her idea. How can I enter into this? And how, how can I possibly take on these voices and become part of this story? So I procrastinated for quite some time. Um, but then finally I couldn't do that anymore, and I had to sit down and begin. And what I discovered was really amazing. What I discovered as I wrote was that it wasn't impossible and it wasn't horrible. It was wonderful. Because I was carrying on this conversation with my aunt, whom I had grown up with, whom I had listened to for my entire life. As I was saying in the beginning, we are a family of storytellers and people who never stop talking. And that had, it, it had seeped in. And I could tell when I began a sentence what she would do with it. I could hear the arc of, of, a, of a paragraph. I could hear it in my head. It made perfect sense to me. The characters made perfect sense to me. Some of them I, I knew personally. And it, for, there was this... Um, you know, I don't want to say magical because that means I didn't do anything, but there was, it was transformative in my idea of what writing is to work with these characters and to have this feeling that this was a story that I could be part of and that I could enter into as fully, even though it was not a story that I had begun. That was an amazing development in, in my idea about writing. Um, and when the book was done... Um, the, I, I showed it to Marianne, and she said, I don't even want to read this. And she died shortly after that, never having read the finished book and never seeing the book published. And when the book came out a few months after she died, it was greeted with this volcano of acclaim and... Um, none of us expected that. I mean, we thought we thought maybe people would like it, but we we were stunned by what happened. And I, we all, of course, wish that Marianne could see it. Although I have hopes that she actually is seeing it. Um, but it it also makes me feel as though all the readers who have enjoyed the book 
are sitting down at that same table that I got to feast at all my life and are joining me in that, that those family storytelling galas that we used to have all the time. So it's been a wonderful experience both for my, me and my family to see the power of Marianne's storytelling and it's also been a wonderful experience for me as a writer to find out that it is possible to make something with another person, to truly create within the story that another person has begun. With all of that said, I'd like to start the reading. (laughs) The problem with reading an epistolary novel is that there's this really boring address business. So I'm just going to mostly skip that and give you a few pointers as I go along. 8th of January, 1946. This letter is from a woman living in London named Juliet Ashton. She is writing to her publisher, Sidney Stark, also in London. Dear Sidney, Susan Scott is a wonder. We sold over 40 copies of the book, which was very pleasant, but much more thrilling from my standpoint was the food. Susan managed to procure ration coupons for icing sugar and real eggs for the meringue. If all of her literary luncheons are going to achieve these heights, I won't mind touring about the country. Do you suppose that a lavish bonus could spur her on to butter? Let's try it. You may deduct the money from my royalties. Now, for my grim news. You asked me how work on my new book is progressing. Sydney, it isn't. English foibles seemed so promising at first. After all, one should be able to write reams about the society to protest the glorification of the English bunny. I unearthed a photograph of the Vermin Exterminators Trade Union marching down an Oxford street with placards screaming down with Beatrix Potter. But what is there to write about after a caption? Nothing, that's what. I no longer want to write this book. My head and my heart just aren't in it. Dear as Izzy Bickerstaff is and was to me, I don't want to write anything else under that name. I don't want to be considered a light-hearted journalist anymore. I do acknowledge that making readers laugh or at least chuckle during the war was no mean feat, but I don't want to do it anymore. I can't seem to dredge up any sense of proportion or balance these days, and God knows one cannot write humor without them. In the meantime, I'm very happy Stevenson Stark is making money on Izzy Bickerstaff Goes to War. It relieves my conscience over the debacle of my Anne Bronte biography. My thanks for everything and love, Juliet. P.S. I am reading the collected correspondence of Mrs. Montague. Do you know what that dismal woman wrote to Jane Carlyle? My dear little Jane, everybody is born with a vocation and yours is to write charming little notes. Hope Jane spat on her. From Dawsey Adams, Guernsey, Channel Islands, to Juliet Ashton. 12th of January, 1946. Dear Miss Ashton, My name is Dawsey Adams, and I live on my farm in St. Martin's Parish on Guernsey. I know of you because I have an old book that once belonged to you. 
the selected essays of Elia by an author whose name in real life was Charles Lamb. Your name and address were written inside the front cover. I will speak plain. I love Charles Lamb. My own book says selected, so I wondered if that meant he had written other things to choose from. These are the pieces I want to read. And though the Germans are gone now, there aren't any bookshops left on Guernsey. I want to ask a kindness of you. Could you send me the name and address of a bookshop in London? I would like to order more of Charles Lamb's writings by post. I would also like to ask if anyone has ever written his life story, and if they had, could a copy be found for me? For all his bright and turning mind, I think Mr. Lamb must have had a great sadness in his life. Charles Lamb made me laugh during the German occupation, especially when he wrote about the roast pig. The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society came into being because of a roast pig that we had to keep secret from the German soldiers, so I feel a kinship to Mr. Lamb. I am sorry to bother you, but I would be sorrier still not to know about him, as his writings have made me his friend. Hoping not to trouble you, Dawsey Adams. P.S. My friend, Mrs. Maugery, bought a pamphlet that once belonged to you, too. It's called, Was There a Burning Bush? A Defense of Moses and the Ten Commandments. She liked your margin note. Word of God or crowd control? (laughs) Did you ever decide which? From Juliet to Dawsey, 15th January, 1946. Dear Mr. Adams, I no longer live on Oakley Street, but I'm so glad that your letter found me and that my book found you. It was a sad wrench to part with the selected essays of Elia. I had two copies in a dire need of shelf room, but I felt like a traitor selling it. You have soothed my conscience. I wonder how the book got to Guernsey. Perhaps there is some secret sort of homing instinct in books that brings them to their perfect readers. How delightful if that were true. Because there's nothing I would rather do than rummage through bookshops, I went at once to Hastings and Son upon receiving your letter. I've gone to them for years, always finding the one book I wanted and then three more I hadn't known I wanted. I told Mr. Hastings you would like a good, clean copy, not a rare edition, of more essays of Elia. He will send it to you by separate post, invoice enclosed, and was delighted to know that you are also a lover of Charles Lamb. He said that the best biography of Lamb was by E.V. Lucas, and he would hunt out a copy for you, though it may take a while. In the meantime, will you accept this small gift from me? It is his selected letters. I think it will tell you more about him than any biography ever could. E.V. Lucas sounds too stately to include my favorite passage from Lamb. I shall certainly come to be condemned at last. I've been drinking too much for two days running, and I find my moral sense in the last stage of a consumption and my religion getting faint. You'll find that in the letters. It's on page 244. They were the first lamb I ever read. I'm ashamed to say that I only bought the book because I'd read elsewhere that a man named Lamb had visited his friend, Lee Hunt, in prison for libeling the Prince of Wales. While there, Lamb helped Hunt paint the ceiling of his cell, sky blue with white clouds. Next, they painted a rose trellis up one wall. Then I further discovered Lamb offered money to help Hunt's family outside the prison, though he himself was poor as a man could be. Lamb also taught Hunt's youngest daughter to say the Lord's Prayer backwards. You naturally want to learn everything you can about a man like that. 
That's what I love about reading. One tiny thing will interest you in a book, and that tiny thing will lead you on to another book, and another bit there will lead you on to a third book. It's geometrically progressive, all with no end in sight and for no other reason than sheer enjoyment. The red stain on the cover that looks like blood is blood. I got careless with my paper knife. The enclosed postcard is a reproduction of a painting of Lamb by his friend William Hazlitt. If you have time to correspond with me, could you answer several questions? Three, in fact. Why did a roast pig dinner have to be kept a secret? How could a pig cause you to begin a literary society? And most pressing of all, what is a potato peel pie and why is it included in your society's name? I have sublet a flat at 23 Glebe Place, Chelsea, London, Southwest 3. My Oakley Street flat was bombed in 1945 and I still miss it. Oakley Street was wonderful. I could see the Thames out of three of my windows. I know that I am fortunate to have any place at all to live in London, but I much prefer whining to counting my blessings. I am glad you thought of me to do your Elia hunting. Yours sincerely, Juliet Ashton. P.S. I never could make up my mind about Moses. It still bothers me. From Dawsey to Juliet. 31st January 1946. Dear Miss Ashton, your book came yesterday. You are a nice lady and I thank you with all my heart. I have a job at St. Peterport Harbor unloading ships so I can read during tea breaks. It is a blessing to have real tea and bread with butter and now your book. I like it too because the cover is soft and I can put it in my pocket everywhere I go, though I am careful not to use it up too quickly. And I value having a picture of Charles Lamb. He had a fine head, didn't he? I would like to correspond with you. I will answer your questions as well as I can, though there are many who can tell a story better than I can. I will tell you about our roast pig dinner. I have a cottage and a farm left to me by my father. Before the war, I kept pigs and grew vegetables for St. Peterport Markets and flowers for Covent Garden. I often worked also as a carpenter and roofer. The pigs are gone now. The Germans took them away to feed their soldiers on the continent and ordered me to grow potatoes. We were to grow what they told us and nothing else. At first, before I knew the Germans as I came to later, I thought I could keep a few pigs hidden for my own self. But the agricultural officer nosed them out and carried them off. Well, that was a blow. But I thought I'd manage all right, for potatoes and turnips were plentiful, and there was still flour then. It is strange, though, how the mind turns on food. After six months of turnips and a lump of gristle now and then, I was hard put to think about anything but a fine, full meal. One afternoon, my neighbor, Mrs. Maugury, sent me a note. Come quick, it said and bring a butcher knife. Tried not to get my hopes high, but I set out for the manor at a great clip. And it was true. She had a pig, a hidden pig, and she invited me to join in the feast with her and her friends. I never talked much while I was growing up. I stuttered badly, and to tell the truth, and I was not used to dinner parties, to tell the truth, Mrs. Maugry's was the first one I was ever invited to. I said yes, because I was thinking of the roast pig, but I wished I could take my piece home and eat it there. It was my good luck that my wish didn't come true, because that was the first meeting of the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, even though we didn't know it then. The dinner was a rare treat, but the company was better. 
with talking and eating. We forgot about clocks and curfews until Amelia, that's Mrs. Moguri, heard the chimes ring nine o'clock. We were an hour late. Well, the good food had strengthened our hearts. And when Elizabeth McKenna said we should strike out for our rightful homes instead of skulking in Amelia's house all night, we agreed. But breaking curfew was a crime. I'd heard of folks being sent to prison camp for it. And keeping a pig was a worse one. So we whispered and picked our way through the fields, quiet as could be. And we would have come out all right, if not for John Booker. He had drunk more than he'd eaten at dinner, and when we got to the road, he forgot himself and broke into song. I grabbed hold of him, but it was too late. Six German patrol officers suddenly rose out of the trees with their lugers drawn and began to shout, why were we out after curfew? Where had we been? Where were we going? I couldn't think what to do. If I ran, they'd shoot me. I knew that much. My mouth was dry as chalk, and my mind was blank, so I just held on to Booker and hoped. And then Elizabeth drew in her breath and stepped forward. Elizabeth isn't tall, so those pistols were lined up at her eyes, but she didn't blink. She acted like she didn't see any pistols at all. She walked up to the officer in charge and started talking. You never heard such lies. How sorry we were that we had broken curfew, how we had been attending a meeting of the Guernsey Literary Society and the evening's discussion of Elizabeth and her German garden had been so delightful that we had lost all track of time. Such a wonderful book. Had he read it? None of us had the presence of mind to back her up, but the patrol officer couldn't help himself. He had to smile back at her. Elizabeth is like that. He took our names and ordered us very politely to report to the commandant the next morning, and then he bowed and wished us a good evening. Elizabeth nodded, gracious as you please, while the rest of us edged away, trying not to run like rabbits. Even lugging Booker, I got home quick. That is the story of our roast pig dinner. And now I would like to ask you a question of my own. Ships are coming into St. Peter Port Harbor every day to bring us things Guernsey still needs, food, clothes, seed, plows, feed for animals, tools, medicine, and most important, now that we have food to eat, shoes. I don't believe that there was a fit pair left on the island by the end of the war. Some of the things sent to us are wrapped up in old newspapers and magazine pages. My friend Clovis and I smooth them out and take them home to read, and then we give them to our neighbors who, like us, are eager for any news of the outside world in the past five years. Not just any news or pictures. Mrs. Saucy wants to see recipes. Madame Lapelle wants fashion papers. She's a dressmaker. Mr. Bruard reads obituaries. He has his hopes, but he won't tell us who. Claudia Rainey is looking for pictures of Ronald Coleman. Mr. Tortell wants to see beauty queens in bathing dress, and my friend Isolo likes to read about the weddings. There is so much we wanted to know during the war, but we were not allowed letters or papers from England or anywhere. In 1942, the Germans called in all of the wireless sets. Of course, there were hidden ones listened to in secret, but if you were caught listening, you could be sent to the camps. That is why we don't understand so many things we read about now. I enjoy the wartime cartoons, but there is one that bewilders me. It was in a 1944 punch, and it shows ten or so people walking down a London street. The chief figures are two men in bowler hats holding briefcases and umbrellas, and one man is saying to the other man, it is ridiculous to say that these doodlebugs have, have, have affected people in any way. 
It took me several seconds to realize that every person in the cartoon had one normal-sized ear and one very large ear on the other side of his head. Perhaps you could explain this to me. Yours sincerely, Dawsey Adams. Juliet to Dawsey, 3rd, January, 3rd February 1946. Dear Mr. Adams, I am so glad you are enjoying Lamb's letters and the copy of his portrait. He did fit the face I had imagined for him, so I'm glad you felt that way too. Thank you very much for telling me about the roast pig, but don't think that I didn't notice you only answered one of my questions. I'm hankering to know more about the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society and not merely to satisfy my idle curiosity. I have a professional duty to pry. Did I tell you I am a writer? I wrote a weekly column for The Spectator during the war and Stevens and Stark publishers collected them together into a single volume and published them under the title Izzy Bickerstaff Goes to War. Izzy was the nom de plume that The Spectator chose for me and now, thank heavens, the poor thing has been laid to rest and I can write under my own name again. I would like to write a book, but I am having trouble thinking of a subject I could live happily with for several years. In the meantime, the Times has asked me to write an article for the literary supplement. They want me to address the practical, they want to address the practical, moral, and philosophical value of reading spread out over three issues and by three different authors. I am to cover the philosophical side of the debate, and so far my only thought is that reading keeps you from going gaga. You can see that I need help. Do you think your literary society would mind being included in such an article? I know that the story of the Society's founding would fascinate the Times' as readers, and I'd love to learn more about your meetings. But if you'd rather not, please don't worry. I will understand either way, and either way, I would like to hear from you again. I remember the punch cartoon you described very well, and I think it was the word doodlebug that threw you off. That was the name coined by the Ministry of Information. It was meant to sound less terrifying than Hitler's V-1 rockets or pilotless bombs. We were all used to bombing raids at night and the sights that followed, but these were unlike any bombs we had ever seen before. They came in the daytime, and they came so fast there was no time for an air raid siren to, or to take cover. You could see them. They looked like slim, black, slanted pencils and made a dull, spastic sound above you, like a motor car running out of petrol. As long as you could hear them coughing and putting, you were safe. You could think, thank God, it's going past me. But when their noise stopped, it made, there was only 30 seconds before it plummeted. So you listened for them, listened hard for the sound of their motors cutting out. I did see a doodle bug fall once. I was quite some distance away when it hit, so I threw myself down in the gutter and cuddled up against the curb. Some women in the top story of a tall office building down the street had gone to an open window to watch. They were sucked out by the force of the blast. It seems impossible now that someone could have drawn a cartoon about doodlebugs and that everyone, including me, could have laughed at it. But we did. The old adage, humor is the best way to make the unbearable bearable, may be true. Has Mr. Hastings found the Lucas biography for you yet? Yours sincerely, Juliet Ashton. So Juliet does... Um, ask the ends up getting permission to talk to the various members of the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society about what reading meant to them during the occupation. And here is a letter that she receives from 
this same Mrs. Maugery, who we've heard of before. This is Amelia Maugery to Juliet Ashton on the 18th of February, 1946. I can't see the clock. Am I? A few more minutes, yeah. Uh, Dear Miss Ashton, thank you for taking my caveat so seriously. At the society meeting last night, I told the members about your article for the Times and suggested that those who wish to do so should correspond with you about the books they read and the joy they found in reading. The response was so vociferous that Isola Privy, our sergeant at arms, was sergeant at arms, was forced to bang her hammer for order. I will admit that Isola needs little encouragement to bang her hammer. I think you will receive a good many letters from us, and I hope they will be of some help to your article. Dozzy has told you that the society was invented as a ruse to keep the Germans from arresting my dinner guests, Dozzy, Isola, Eben Ramsey, John Booker, Will Fisby, and our dear Elizabeth McKenna, who manufactured the story on the spot, bless her quick wits and silver tongue. I, of course, knew nothing of their predicament at the time. As soon as they left, I made haste down to my cellar to bury the evidence of our meal. The first I heard of our literary society was the next morning at seven when Elizabeth appeared in my kitchen and asked, how many books have you got? I had quite a few, but Elizabeth looked at my shelves and shook her head. We need more. There's too much gardening here. She was right, of course. I do like a good garden book. I tell you what we'll do, she said. After I'm done at the Commandant's office, we'll go to Fox's bookshop and buy them out. If we're going to be the Guernsey Literary Society, we have to look literary. I was frantic all forenoon, worrying over what was happening happening at the Commandant's office. What if they all ended up in the Guernsey jail, or worst of all, in a prison camp on the continent? The Germans were erratic in dispensing their justice, so one never knew which sentence would be imposed. But nothing of the sort occurred. Odd as it may sound, the Germans allowed and even encouraged artistic and cultural pursuits among the Channel Islanders. Their object was to prove to the British that the German occupation was a model occupation. How this message was to be conveyed to the outside world was never explained as the telephone and telegraph cable between Guernsey and London had been cut on the day that the Germans landed in June 1940. Whatever their skewed reasoning, the Channel Islands were treated much more leniently than the rest of conquered Europe at first. At the Commandant's office, my friends were ordered to pay a small fine and submit the name and membership list of their society. The Commandant announced that he, too, was a lover of literature. Might he, with a few like-minded officers, sometimes attend meetings? Elizabeth told them that they would be most welcome. And then she, Eben, and I flew to Fox's, chose armloads of books for our newfound society, and rushed back to the manor to put them on my shelves. Then... We strolled from house to house, looking so carefree and casual as in order to alert the others to come that evening and choose a book to read. It was agonizing to walk slowly, stopping to chat here and there when we wanted to scurry. Timing was vital, as since Elizabeth feared the commandant would appear at the next meeting a bare two weeks away, he did not. A few German officers did attend over the years, but thankfully left in some confusion and did not return. And so it was that we began. I knew all our members, but I did not know them all well. Dawsey had been my neighbor for over 30 years, and yet I don't believe I had ever spoken to him of anything more than weather and farming. Isola was a dear friend, and Eben too, but Will Fisby was only an acquaintance, and John Booker was nearly a stranger, for he had only just arrived when the Germans came. It was Elizabeth we had in common— 
Without her urging, I would never have thought to invite them to share my pig, and the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society would never have drawn breath. That evening, when they came to my house to make their selections, those who had rarely read anything other than scripture seed catalogs and the Pigman's Gazette discovered a different kind of reading. It was here that Dawsey found his Charles Lamb and Isola fell upon Wuthering Heights. For myself, I chose the Pickwick papers, thinking it would lift my spirits, and it did. Then each went home and read. We began to meet, for the sake of the commandant at first, and then for our own pleasure. None of us had any experience with literary society, so we made our own rules. We took turns speaking about the books we'd read. At the start, we tried to be calm and objective, but that soon fell away, and the purpose of the speakers was to goad the listeners into wanting to read the books themselves. Once two members had read the same book, they could argue, which was our great delight. We read books, talked books, argued over books, and became dearer and dearer to one another. Other islanders asked to join us, and our evenings together became bright, lively times. We could almost forget, now and then, the darkness outside. We still meet every fortnight. Will Thisbe was responsible for the inclusion of potato peel pie in our society's name. Germans or no, he wasn't going to go to any meetings unless there were eats. So, refreshments became a part of our program. Since there was scant butter, less flour, and no sugar to spare on Guernsey then, Will concocted a potato peel pie, mashed potatoes for filling, strained beets for sweetness, and potato peelings for crust. Will's recipes are usually dubious, but this one became a favorite. I would enjoy hearing from you again and learning how your article progresses. Yours most sincerely, Amelia Maugury. From Isola Pribby to Juliet. 19th of February, 1946. Dear Miss Ashton, oh my, oh my, you have written a book about Anne Bronte, sister to Charlotte and Emily. Amelia Maugury says she will lend it to me for she knows I have a fondness for the Bronte girls. Poor lambs. To think all five of them had weak chests and died so young, what a sadness. Their pa was a selfish thing, wasn't he? He paid his girls no mind at all, always sitting in his study, yelling for his shawl. He never rose to wait, up, to wait upon himself, did he? Just sat alone in his room while his daughters died like flies. And their brother, Branwell, he wasn't much either, always drinking and sicking up on the carpets. They were forever having to clean up after him, fine work for lady authoresses. It is my belief that with two such men in the household and no way to meet others, Elizabeth had to make Heathcliff up out of thin air, and what a fine job she did. Men are more interesting in books than they are in real life. <laughs> Amelia told us that you would like to know about our book society and what we talk about at our meetings. I gave a talk on the Bronte girls once when it was my turn to speak. I am sorry I can't send you my notes on Charlotte and Emily. I used them to kindle a fire in my cook stove, there being no other paper in the house. I had already burnt up the tide tables, the book of Revelation, and the story about Job. You will want to know why I admired those girls. I like stories about passionate encounters. I myself have never had one, but now I can picture one. I didn't like Wuthering Heights at first, but the minute that specter Kathy scrabbled her bony fingers on the window glass, I was grasped by the throat and not let go. With that Emily, I could hear Heathcliff's pitiful cries upon the moors. 
I don't believe that after reading such a fine writer as Emily Bronte, I will be happy to read again Miss Amanda Gillyflower's *Ill Used* by Candlelight. Reading good books ruins you for enjoying bad books. <laughs> I will tell you now about myself. I have a cottage and small holding next to Amelia Maugeri's manor house and farm. We are both situated by the sea. I tend my chickens and my goat, Ariel, and grow things. I have a parrot in my keeping, too. Her name is Zenobia, and she does not like men. I have a stall at market every week where I sell my preserves, vegetables, and elixirs I make to restore manly ardor. Kit McKenna, daughter to my dear friend Elizabeth McKenna, helps me make my potions. She's only four and has to stand on a stool to stir my pot, but she is able to whip up big froths. I do not have a pleasing appearance. My nose is big and was broken when I fell off the henhouse roof. One eyeball skitters up to the top, and my hair is wild and, wild and will not stay tamped down. I am tall and built of big bones. I could write to you again if you want me to. I could tell you more about reading and how it perked up our spirits while the Germans were here. The only time reading didn't help was after Elizabeth was arrested by the Germans. They caught her hiding one of those poor slave workers from Poland, and they sent her to prison in France. There was no book then that could lift my heart, not then, nor for a long time after. It was all I could do not to slap every German I saw. For Kit's sake, I held myself in. She was only a little sprout then, and she needed us. Elizabeth hasn't come home yet. We are afraid for her, but mind you, I say it's early days yet, and she might still come home. I pray so, for I miss her sorely. Your friend, Isola Pribby. And I think that's where I'll stop and see if any of you people have some questions that you'd like to ask. Thank you. Thank you. Does anybody have any questions? Oh, Beverly. I think that my aunt did not feel that way, and I don't feel that way. I'm a great believer in the, the, the leavening power of trash, really. Um, and I know that Marianne didn't feel that way because she gave me a series of books that more or less ruined my life for years. It's, I, not, I, I refuse to repeat the name because I don't want anyone to go find these books. No, they're just too terrible. They're all about noble-jawed men who rescue winsome young girls and fall madly in love with them. And she gave me those books, so she must have liked the trashy, dreadful books like Ill-Used by Candlelight. <laughs> what happened to Elizabeth? Oh, you think I would tell you? Just as in the uh, Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, my object is to goad other people into reading the books I want them to read, among them this one. You've got to find out for yourself. I can't be doing all the work around here. <laughs> yes? Um, what she's referring to is something that happens at the end of the book, which is our, our departure from the, the epistolary form. We, one of our characters, Isola, in fact, um, uh, suddenly bursts into detection notes. She's practicing to be a detective. Actually, that comes from a handbook on how to spy on people. That thing where you're supposed to, you're supposed to look in another direction and, and kind of unfocus your eyes so that you can 
look out the look at the <laughs> peripheral vision. It increases your peripheral vision if you unfocus your eyes a tiny little bit, apparently, but it also really hurts. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. Um, one of a great sport in my family is going to restaurants and spying on the people in the restaurant. And my own mother taught me that you should never go anywhere without a mirror. And the purpose is not to check your lipstick, but to, so you can hold it up to your eye and see what the people behind you look like. <laughs> so I think it's sort of a family tradition, this, the various techniques you, you might need in order to find out what other people are saying. Yes? Right. Um, well, the, that's, a, that's a complicated question, what, the, the envisioning of this many different characters. Um, yes, of course, we had to give, our, give them voices. What the, I think the motivating factor, there are several motivating factors here. Um, Marianne loved the epistolary form. Marianne loved reading literary letters. She loved reading novels and letters. So that was there from the very beginning. When I got the manuscript, it was epistolary. And I once said, Marianne, why did you choose the epistolary form? And she said, I thought it would be easier, um, which is a very funny answer, but is actually a very true answer because the, the, I mean, the standard, the classic epistolary novel is uh, Pamela by Samuel Richardson, 18th century, you have one, um, one main character who's an, an innocent country lass who comes to London and falls into the clutches of the lascivious aristocrat and proceeds to write 40-page letters home every single night detailing everything. But this, we can't, a contemporary reader can't put up with that in, in terms, it doesn't, it's, it, we don't, it's not credible to us. However, Marianne and I were in the position of having a lot of information to convey about the occupation. Now, if we had had, say, five characters writing letters detailing various episodes that actually did occur during the occupation, it would, it would, it would be incredible to the reader that one person would have experienced you know, the, you know, the scene, what happened to the pets, um, seen what happened to the tote workers, encountered a commandant with a literary bent. Therefore, it was much more sensible to have a, a number of different correspondents, and that was what, what she chose to do, is have a number of different, different correspondents writing to Juliet about, the, about various episodes of the occupation. Once that decision was made, of course you have to think of different characters. I mean, they have to have different voices, and I, I think that the, the just the, what you get in an island is the same thing you get in a small town. You get a deep knowledge of the quirks and background of everybody around you, and I think that that's what she, she and I are showing here is that real small town sense of the kind of characters who are allowed to become more and more eccentric and it doesn't bother anybody, and that's, those are the people that ended up writing all these letters. Yes? What are you working on now? Um, I am working, I'm continuing to write for children. I've decided to produce Annie Barrow's literary products will be for all people, short and tall. Um, I'm going to continue to write for children, but I am, I have been signed up to write two more novels, and I'm working on a novel uh, right now that is set in West Virginia in 1938. We're, we're off of 
the island, we're off of World War II. Um, it's about a, a girl who works for the Federal Writers Project and finds herself in a small town in West Virginia. Um, she's supposed to be writing a history of the town, and she encounters a family who decides that they're going to tell her what the history of the town is. And it's, um, well, I wouldn't want to say it's a pack of lies, but it's not exactly the truth. They like it better that way. It's about what happens to all of them. Yes, yes, yes. I could fake it. <laughs> no, Marianne uh, was born and raised in West Virginia, and I w was born and raised here in California. Um, she was a, both of us are lifetime Anglophile readers, um, but I have to say that was the most, the most difficult part about coming on to this project, for me, was not the British. It was the 1946. Um, I, God, I, me and the OED spent many hours together, you know, because the OED tells you when different words came into usage. So I use that a lot. But it's neither of us are British. Marianne spent, I think, a grand total of two months of her life in England. She just read a lot. Yes? I did go to Guernsey myself. Um, I went last summer. Gosh, it seems like so long ago now. I went last summer after I had the book was all turned in. It was on press, but it hadn't come out yet. So it was um, extremely nerve-wracking because I went there to see if all the things I had made up were correct. <laughs> and um, most of them were. There's not much that's actively wrong in what I did. Uh, yeah, nice distinction, huh? Um, but yeah, I, was, I, uh, I thought that I should go and see what, happened, what, what, what it really looked like because, honestly, that was the hardest piece to get. It wasn't the information. I, you know, I, I read up on every piece of Guernsey history I could, folklore, customs, language, cuisine, you know, uh, history, the, the works. And I came here and to the map room and found myself a 1932 surveyor's map of the island of Guernsey, which was a godsend. And it's, Guernsey is a fishing destination. So I got myself a really nice fishing map. That was handy too. But there's one thing you really can't find out, and that's what you can see from a specific point. And so there were things that, well, actually there was a lot of things you can't find out, but I had made up a lot about what people were seeing at certain points. And it was... Um, it was good. I, did. I wasn't wrong. <laughs> yes? Yes. Good. Oh, yes. There's a new one out this week. It's the cutest book ever. Um, yeah, uh, Ivy and Bean Doomed to Dance um, is the sixth book in the series that came out this week. It's, the story is about ballet and squid. Um, the, I just finished writing the seventh one, and there will be another one after that, as soon as I figure out what it's about. Do you have one more question? That, that could be you. What did you actually write with, uh, separate from what you're asked? Well, no, I'm so glad you asked that question, because I brought, I brought a bag full of things I wrote just because. <laughs> I can show you what I wrote. Actually, I won't bother showing you. It's too heavy. Um, I, I wrote, um, for many years, I wrote nonfiction um, for adults. Uh, I wrote a book about opera. I wrote a book about urban legends. 
I wrote a book about fortune telling.、Um, and then I felt that because I was spending all my time with children and only reading children's books, might be who. Be a reasonable thing for me to write books for children. That's when I began to write for children.、Um, that in the first of the Ivy and Bean books was published in 2006, and there, as I say, the sixth one just came out. I've written another book for、um, more middle grade kids called The Magic Half, and then I've now I've written Guernsey, and I'm moving towards adult fiction as well.、Um, written, I've written everything. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I think we got one more. Can we have one more?、Sure. There's one more question back there, and that'll be our last one. Yes.、Um, there were a lot of there were some well there were some structural changes, but I would say that by and large,、um, what they wanted was more of everything. The book was、um, considerably shorter when I got it, and for instance. Among the things that I just read, there was the the descriptions of the beginning of the roast pig dinner. You, I actually I think I read two letters, one from Amelia, and、um, one from Dawsey describing the roast pig dinner. In that in the manuscript that I got, one of those letters was a lot shorter, and then I added another just from an, another person's perspective on that, which I did not read tonight. So it was it was. It was mostly things like that, adding more to what was already there. There were a couple of structural things.、Um, there were some some shifts in the in the order of things, but mostly my job was to add more. So that's what I did. And I think that's the end of the question. So thank you so much for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.